Hey everybody, welcome to the No Film School Podcast for the week of June 3rd, 2022. My name is Charles Hain. I am a filmmaker. I'm here with Editor-in-Chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. And filmmaker and podcaster and writer, Gigi Hawkins. Hey there. This week we are going to be talking about the school shooting in Uvalde. We are going to be talking about Top Gun, Maverick. And then we have the busiest week we've had in tech news in forever. We have three different tech newses to cover this week on the No Film School podcast. All right. Uh, the first thing we're going to talk about, Uvalde. Yeah. Um, it's been in my mind and in a lot of people's minds, obviously, since it happened, the school shooting. In Evalde, another incident like this and a long list, an endless list of incidents like this in this country. This is a podcast about filmmaking. Occasionally, we veered into topics that were so big that had nothing to do with filmmaking, but were so big they were impossible to ignore. I think this is one of these. And I do think that there is a tie-in to our industry and to our craft, mainly because, you know, I grew up in an American culture that was saturated with violence on television, in movies, and in video games. And oftentimes, entertainment violence was pointed to as a potential problem, a cause of, of real-life violence or something like that. I believe we're probably past the point now where we still see that as the reasoning. There are violent movies, television shows, and video games all over the world. And as The Onion often reminds us, this is the only place where this keeps happening. But I do think that there's a very uniquely American perspective that is often reflected in our films, our televisions, and our video games, which is the idea, something, an argument about gun control and gun violence that was sort of shattered in some ways by this event, or many others, but certainly by this event, if you looked at the incident closely. And I'm curious to hear from both of you and from our audience what the takes are on this. But it's this idea that there is a the good guy with the gun concept. I believe that that thought process is very rooted in our own iconography, culturally. I believe that that excuse or reasoning that there could be somebody, a hero with a gun, who's quicker on the draw or more ready to go or more of a deterrent is a falsehood. It's not how gun violence actually works in the world. There's always a lot of messiness and death and chaos and fear and unpredictable elements. I mean, I've fired a gun. Firing a gun is a scary, violent act. I think that our culture has propagated an idea that you can be capable of honing in and stopping something before it starts because you have a gun and you're a good gunman. And I believe that that's a part of our shared inherited mythology. It predates entertainment in the film world or the television or video game world because it's part of our Western mythology about cowboys. It's part of everything we think about the world is that, you know, you could be the quicker one and you could be a deterrent if, you, if you're armed. But it really struck me that we keep coming back to that despite evidence to the contrary, where we have armed deterrent figures in place who are uncomfortable with the risks because maybe their guns aren't as powerful as the ones that have been obtained by the shooters, or maybe just because, 
hey, they don't want to get shot either. But I think my angle and my point here is that I think we finally are seeing that this is simply not true. And we need to look past that barrier that we could arm ourselves so well that we could protect against something like this. I, I believe, I hope that this incident has finally fractured that fallacy. Because to me, that is something that's connected to our inherited film. Like, you know, someone's going to be John Wick or something. And they're going to be bulletproof, impossible to hit, but able to hit all their marks and save the day. That is, I believe, something we buy here. I don't know that it's something people buy in other countries, but I believe that a lot of the people in this country buy that fallacy. And I'm hoping that finally, for the sake of countless future lives, it's over. And to me, not talking about this issue would be, we would be remiss not to address it in some way or, or cover it here because it's just yet another devastating, absurd uh, loss of life that just cuts to the core of all of our emotions. And it's just the ultimate tragedy. I totally agree with you, George. And on top of that, especially when it comes to like the portrayal of guns in our culture and in the stories we tell, I think of like this latest season of Love, Death and Robots, which was just riddled with this unoriginal sort of narrative. There were a couple of good episodes, but then there were just over and over again, these like extremely violent gun-driven like art they weren't even they were all the same it was like a group of people in some kind of army with american accents like shooting at aliens or robots or robot bears and and i was like this doesn't even feel original anymore this narrative doesn't even feel nuanced in any way and the fact that we continue to come back to this in my opinion, like true glorification of the the good guy with the gun who can hit all the targets and protect everything. And and that we're seeing people continue to to lean on that narrative. I, I think that, you know, we should challenge ourselves to think beyond that as filmmakers. I totally believe with everything you guys are both saying, like we, as filmmakers, the same way that we have to be extra conscious if we're working with a sex scene, if we're working with people from different cultures, like, like no one is saying you're not allowed to have a sex scene in your movie anymore. No one is saying you're not allowed to make a film about someone that doesn't look like you anymore. But we, we are, the climate is changing where we expect a tremendous amount of thought and research and nuance to go into that so that you do it accurately and in a way that has sensitivity. And like, I think the same is true of gun violence or violence in general is like thinking about the context of what it means and how it works and what the purpose is and like why you're doing it and what it perpetuates. The other thing that really hit me about, I mean, I haven't thought about much else in the last week, especially the first couple of days. I mean, it's just so awful. Even if you're not a parent, it's awful. But then once you're a parent, it just like, it becomes all you can, becomes all consuming. But the other thing that's really struck me is, you know, the parents who ignored the cops and went in and got their own kids anyway. And the sort of takeaway I'd been thinking about with that in film sets is that like film sets are very hierarchical and there are a lot of like orders and structure and you just do what you're told. But I, there's a beauty in being like, no, objectively, this is wrong. And I'm just going to ignore this person who has authority over me and do the thing I think is right and get my kids out. And I think filmmakers, People who work on film sets sh should remember that we're still human beings. And if people order us to do things that are unsafe, we don't do them. 
And like, it's been very rare that's happened to me on sets, but I was on a set as a sound recordist very early in my career. And at one point, the hours were getting very late and group department was like, we're done. And I, I think about them a lot. And this was yeah. like 20 years ago. But they were like, yeah, it's over. If we drive home any later than this, we're, it's not going to be safe. And we're out. And the director was like, the director took it really well. I actually still know the director. The director handled it very well. But it was like, it was one of those moments where I was like, oh, yeah, like officially the producer and director decide when we wrap. The crypt department was like, we don't feel like it's safe at this point. We're done. And like, I think that it's, you know, it's a delicate balancing act. But like, if your kids are in the school, ignore the cops telling you not to go in and go in like that. I get it. And like, there, there are moments on set where we see unsafe things happen and it's all of our duty to stop it, even though the first idea is officially in charge of me. I really like that you brought up that angle. Actually, I like, I like what both of you said. Gigi, you reminded me that I do want to make this distinction as well, that I believe that there are many ways to quote unquote glorify violence and gun violence that don't necessarily impact the way people behave in the real world. I think we have evidence of that all over the world. I just think we have this weird obsession with this. I, I think this that in this culture, we've just lost sight of that blurred reality. Like we can't all accept somehow. We, it's, it's hardwired somewhere in the culture that, it, that that is not a, a fiction or a fantasy. But Charles, to your point, yeah, I've been on sets where even in a producer role, I felt a lot of pressure not to call it when I felt it was unsafe. And sometimes it takes a lot to be like, you know what? I don't care if I'm going around authority or making a decision that might look overly cautious or whatever. In this instance, I feel like safety first and I feel like I'm trusting my gut and sets are a tough environment. And, you know, talking about gun violence and sets, there's a horrific gun violent incident on a set that we've talked about on this podcast, but that, that happened. I think that we just in general, we can't, we can't be too careful. And it's a really good point that you want to always look out for, you know, what's safe and not defer to contextual authority necessarily, if you really perceive risk. Both of those points come back to these this element of how we're perceiving the world around us and what we're hardwired to think. And I think that this is a time that we're seeing in the film industry, but also across the board where we're, we're questioning it in a way that feels hopefully productive. The fact that 20 years ago, the grip department was able to put their foot down and say, nope, this is not safe. We're walking off set gives me hope that that type of behavior will continue. And hopefully we can see that across the board. I mean, the, the reason film is so hierarchical is it is more efficient. Like if every single time you want to do anything, the entire grip department is like, I don't know, you want your 12 by there? What if your 12 by was over there? And then you're like kvetching about where you want your 12 by. It slows everything down. But there's a confusion, I think, that happens between like efficiency and speed and other factors. And I think in safety, like, I like a culture where everyone can just call it on safety. Like, if you're the PA, but you watch someone doing something that is wildly unsafe, like, we're still human beings separate from those hierarchies. So, like, a PA should not go up to the director and be like, you know, have you thought about shooting it from this angle? I really feel like you're, you know, but like. But we all know one PA that has done that. Oh, oh, yeah. We all know that PA. And sometimes that PA is really lovable. 
But if you see something <laughs> unsafe, you do, you don't have to defer to authority. And it is this like thing. I mean, it's it's a complicated thing. Yeah, but it all it all also goes back to what are the stories we're telling and how are we perpetuating elements within those stories, which is like sort of a segue to thinking about Top Gun Maverick, which opened huge over the weekend. And we talked about Top Gun Maverick last week in context of is Tom Cruise a movie star and how does that affect your decision making as an independent filmmaker casting? But then, you know, news broke this week in the LA Times. We've long known that big studio movies worked with the Pentagon. This was this was known, right? Like the Air Force participated in Captain Marvel. And, you know, in exchange for access to aircraft carriers and access to planes and other heavy equipment, you know, you you get in exchange for that, the Pentagon wants script approval. And like they're reading script drafts, they're giving their notes, they're expecting their notes to be followed. I mean, in the case of Captain Marvel, there were even like part of the contract with stars doing recruiting events. So there are Captain Marvel Air Force recruiting events. And, you know, we know this is started with the original. I mean, it actually goes back to Dragnet in the 50s, which was an LAPD production. Like it goes back very deep. Like this is an old thing. But like Top Gun famously worked very closely with the Pentagon in 1984 and obviously did again with Top Gun Maverick. It's a thing to unpack and think about, especially when you think about movies like Apocalypse Now that went to the Philippines and worked with the Philippine army and got full support there, which had its own moral compromises, but then had the freedom not to work with the Pentagon and thus paint probably a more accurate picture of the Vietnam War mm-hmm. than would have happened when looking at like a John Wayne film like The Green Berets, which was done <laughs> in collaboration with the Pentagon and is probably not as accurate to what the Vietnam War was actually like. And it is something to like think about and stay conscious of as filmmakers, especially this article. I, I had thought dozens of films had worked with the Pentagon. I would have said dozens. And then the article, they were like, well, we all knew hundreds of films worked with the Pentagon. And I was like, we all knew that? <laughs> hundreds of films? And then they were like, and newly Actually. released documents say thousands, 2,500 films. And I was like, whoa, that's a lot. And like, there are famous examples where it's very public. There's the SEAL movie from a decade ago, shot by Shannon Hobart on Canon 5Ds, that was like, there were many news articles about how the SEALs worked with the filmmakers. Like, that was very public. And I've actually met some of the people in the SEALs who like worked on that. But like, that was very public. Like, if you missed that the SEALs worked on that movie, you really weren't paying attention. Like, that was like, I think it was even in the trailer, like, worked with the SEALs. But like, 2,500 <laughs> films implies that like, Seinfeld was getting approval from yeah. the Pentagon. For, like, <laughs> That's funny. I knew it. I knew it. Hey, maybe. I think that, and I want to tie this back to the last segment because that was so heavy compared to this. But I want to tie back because I think there's an important thread, which is, you know, we talk about, this is a filmmaking podcast, but one of the better ways to become a good filmmaker is to become a critical thinker, and an analytic audience member. And so understanding or looking at context and trying to see what elements are at play can make you better at making choices. Film is a super, super powerful medium in ways that people don't realize when they wield it. And they're not necessarily supposed to. You don't have to make a movie knowing that you wield the power to dictate people's life choices. You do, because when you make a movie like Top Gun with the help of, or Top Gun Maverick or anything, with the help of the Pentagon, and you put forth certain ideas, 
and you re- represent them in a certain context and you make things seem a certain way, even if you're always trying to just tell a good story, being conscientious of how that can be interpreted and experienced and what kind of impact that has on people's lives or decisions is worthwhile. It's kind of like saying the unexamined life is not worth living. I think the unexamined film may still be worth making, but I think it's valuable to try and consider what sort of impact your narrative has. It is all propaganda. And that, and I don't say propaganda in the scary sense that when sometimes the, the connotation there is that that means you're, you're trying to brainwash people or something. It's, it's not. It's just even making a Spider-Man movie is kind of a propaganda because you're still putting forth certain ideas and young moldable sponge brains young people, I mean, our brains are still changing up to like 25 or something like that. (laughs) So like brains are shifting. They're taking in a story and they're thinking about mantras like with great power comes great responsibility. And and like they interpret literally, we've talked about all this like, oh, if I do X, then Y. I'm not putting all of this on everybody who's just trying to tell a good story. I get it. Or just trying to give people an escape or have fun. But part of the responsibility is on the filmmaker. Part of the responsibility is on you as an audience to look at where it's coming from, what things are contributing to it. Like, try to try to understand the interconnected massive web. It makes you a smarter person. It makes you a better audience. It makes you a better creator. It makes you better anything you do in the industry to kind of see the pieces together. And I think, like you said, finding out that thousands of movies work with the Pentagon is mind-blowing and amazing and also terrifying. And I think that just the same as you know, there's a reason in Top Gun Maverick, there's there's a number of reasons why. Unlike the prior Top Gun and many other movies, this the villain country is not stated clearly. They stay away from labeling who the bad guys are because it can't be China right now, right? Like so so you have mm-hmm. to and it's not Russia. You have you have to understand the why, I think. Or look, you don't have to but you're better off if you try to. I really believe that. Right. I think you become a better contributor on all ends of it. And I think that it makes for better storytelling and, and, and discourse, truly. I also think it leads us, as we think about our journey as filmmakers, to think early and often, most people assume that they're all morally good and that they're going to make the best decisions they possibly can. And then life is full of these constant moral compromises that you're always making. And I remember... When my company started, you know, one of our first clients was like a client that neither of us expected, but it was a big client. There was a lot of money. We were like, all right, so who are, who would we say no to? Like, this is something that like mm-hmm. we assumed we would never work in this field. And, you know, our joke was always, uh, all right, well, Raytheon and Raytheon and Lockheed Martin. We're not going to work for Raytheon and Lockheed Martin was our joke, <laughs> you know, which is fair. Like they make knife missiles. I don't want to participate in marketing knife missiles. Those sound terrible. And it is interesting to think about like the journey <laughs> really, of the people. Sorry to cut you off. I thought it would be really funny if this was going with. And eventually we worked with Lockheed Martin. Yeah. <laughs> I was just hoping for that punchline, but. <laughs> we did but, take you know, them on as a client. The folks directing, Cap- I, I don't know why I keep going back to Captain Marvel, but like it's indie filmmakers. It's Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck who did all sorts of st- great stuff like Half Nelson and sugar and you know they did indies and a lot of people do indies and are hopeful or excited by the possibility of like oh i will do an indie and then i will also get to do bigger things yeah and like thinking about like all right well the safety brothers are very public we're like we have no interest in ever doing a marvel movie we get to make our stuff as it is right now like we're just not going to do that 
and that's not interesting to us, but we have gotten that offer. And, and like, that's kind of punk rock. I, I'm not judging the, the filmmakers who did Captain Marvel. I haven't seen the film yet. I love Hap Nelson. Hap Nelson's an amazing movie. It's like the perfect indie, like, feature to start your career with. Hap Nelson rocks. If you haven't go seen it, see it. But it's like, you should think now about, like, I always like to say it's easier to make decisions about money before the money appears. Like, if you're starting a production company mm. with friends or a post house mm-hmm. with friends, like, talk about how money will flow and profits will get shared and everything. Because it's way easier to do it when there's nothing in the bank account. And then when actually, right. when money is actually flowing, it's way more complicated to talk about because you're like, holy shit, there's money. And I feel like I earned it all and it should be mine and I don't want to share <laughs> it anymore or whatever. Whatever drama happens and you're around long enough and you see a lot of the drama happen. But that's the big one is like, I feel like I made all this money. And so you want to think about how you divide up money before the money flows is advice I always give my students. And I also think like you want to think about who your clients and collaborators that you're open to before the decisions on the table, because like I've never, and at this point am unlikely to ever be in a position where I'm working on it. Like, I mean, who knows? Careers are long. Maybe studio movies are in my future, but it doesn't seem like, like action's not my grind. The kind of movies I want to make, I think are, are likely permanently independent, but like, if I ended up in an opportunity where like there was the possibility of a studio movie, but it was really obvious that the Pentagon was going to be involved. It's better to think about it now than it is to think about it when there's like a $10 million paycheck involved. Right. Because and where it's to a draw different... the line, where, where to draw yeah. the line creatively, if you are even going to collaborate or agree to partner with them, because the thing that concerns me the most from this LA times article that we shared around this morning is certain films were mentioned that would only receive funding if they cooperated in this way. And that feels like where it gets murky and that the exact scenario where the money's either, you want to have that conversation beforehand with yourself before the opportunity's there. We're in a world where almost any major action movie that involves like military hardware is not getting financed if the Pentagon's not on board. That's what makes Apocalypse Now such a standout is the American government had sold enough hardware that looked American to the Philippine government that they were able yeah. to work with the Philippine army, which involved its own compromises and still have what looked like American hardware. But if you want to have anything that looks like American hardware, it is nearly impossible unless you end up doing everything CGI to not collaborate in some way with the Pentagon. And, you know, the budget just scales, right? Like if you're like, all right, well, I've got this scene on a, an aircraft carrier and the studio is like, okay, well, how much does that cost to rent today? Or can we get it for free? Like any of these movies are not going to exist without Pentagon approval at this point. So you have to think about like, well, what does that mean? And what are you participating and collaborating in? I also didn't really realize the uh, extent to which the CIA was involved, but I am not surprised to s- discover the extent to which the CIA is involved. There was a suggestion in the article, in the LA Times article, that they were like, we should pass a law that you have to disclose this in your ed- head credits. And I agree. Like it should be in the head credits of the movie that like, you know, right after no, uh, no this film does not... Re- represent real persons living or dead there should yeah. be right after that like this film was made in collaboration with these yeah because, because you, you make like a really a good point it's like the animals were harmed thing before they had that nobody was like but were those animals harmed 
Like nobody, like why would you know to ask a question, right? Like nobody out there watching movies knows. Like, I mean, some people do, but most people are out there. They're going to Top Gun. Like, why would they think twice? They could be extremely educated, intelligent individual. Why would they think twice about whether or not the Pentagon was involved or the CIA was involved or this was putting forward subtly or not so subtly ideas that influence things, massive cultural shifts and influence? To me, that's the, that's the thing is like, Knowing and journalists continuing to provide that information, people like mm-hmm. us resharing it across different networks when somebody does a story about it on the LA Times. So everybody in the filmmaking community and in the film watching community becomes aware of like what direction things are being shifted in. I, and I also think and that by whom? it shouldn't be uh, completely vilified or off the table either to, to all of your points about these the opportunity to make the movie and tell a story. I have a feeling that in the original Top Gun, which I only watched on Friday for the first time right before seeing Top Gun Maverick. What? I know, I know. But one of my one of my favorite things about it was that Iceman as sort of the antagonist, his whole MO was like, what you're doing is dangerous and you're going to hurt people. And I'm like, that's a really good point. Like, this feels like something that I could see the, I know it was the Navy at the time, would be supporting that message. And I'm supporting that message. And I feel like that's an important message to support as we're seeing people fly around and do all these risky things. And I'm like, that that feels like a good moral conversation to be talking about. And so I, you know, this is all conjecture, but I could see the partnership with the Navy be that being something that that we're like, well, we support this storyline. So I do think that there's like positive things and outside of just, you know, military entities, what how are we as an industry working with experts in in climate change and and nuclear energy and using resources from the government to tell stories that are informed on across those entities. And I think that's also really important because entertainment is so powerful. I got to throw something out there, even though there are drills and jackhammers all around here right now, <laughs> that I, I complain bitterly here, maybe not so bitterly, but just in general, because I'm a bitter complainer in the world about how <laughs> Don't Look Up felt a little propagandistic. And I want to make it yes. clear that I am not about, even though you know my politics and my social views tend to be pretty progressive, I am not like saying, hey, like it's only got to be this way. It's got to align with my views. Everything they were trying to say aligns with my views in that movie. Right. And it still annoyed the hell out of me because I don't really like how heavy handed it was. Like it was like nails mm-hmm. on a chalkboard to me. And it almost made me feel like, oh, like this is making my, this is making me cringe because this is, I feel like anti the cause that I care about. So like my right. thing, and I just bring that up as a counterpoint to like, I think you should be careful how you do it. I think you should be aware of the tools available. I think you should be aware of how people, like, you know, far be it for me to tell the people who made Don't Look Up how to make movies or any of these people. They're very skilled, talented filmmakers, and they've worked with forces, very powerful ones beyond my range of experience. So, but what I'm saying is just like, anytime you're kind of like message, 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 and like pushing it hard, you have to kind of be aware of that. And I think you can push too hard and have the opposite effect of the desired effect. And yeah, there's just, it's a very, it's like, I mean, it's like cooking and like certain flavors are really powerful. 
And if you mm-hmm. dump too much Tabasco into the stew, like you're going to have a lot of people who react in a way that's like, I can't even, I can't eat this anymore. Like I can't even appreciate the other ingredients, you know, at this point. I'll put, also put it this way. The danger is if you put in some subtle spice of some kind and people aren't even aware that it's there, like the mm-hmm. o- opposite end of the spectrum of the overload where people are like, I can't even eat this because it's don't look up. For me, that was, it was like that yeah, or yeah, this other, yeah. like, huh, like I, I, I've been confused. Like it's a Trojan horse for vegetables for a kid. Like, yeah, so yeah. there's so many, there's so many ways that you mix up like what your intentions are or, you know, and I just, again, like I keep coming back to this idea of like trying to be aware and, and, and critical and analytical about all the forces and all the, the elements you're combining and not just kind of stumbling through because you are all creators, especially film, it is more, it, it has such a power. You wield a powerful magic wand <laughs> as a filmmaker. John August has been doing some great interviews on script notes the last two months with experts in their fields on nuclear energy and climate change. And there are a couple other topics, but I, th- I think there's also this element and it, it ties us back to what we were talking about with the first segment, but like original storytelling like if if you're just gonna default to nuclear power being the uh, a negative thing which uh it's not and it's way more complex than that then we've also seen that before so i think it hinders you if you're not thinking critically about you know what you decide to include in your story i agree i love that john august is doing that and i think everyone should check it out i think when we teach screenwriting, we, we talk a lot about like story structure and character motivation. And all of that is huge, but also like tremendous research and like what research actually looks like, what research skills are. And it's more than just watching YouTube videos, although that can be part of it mm. as a beginning. But like what research actually looks like to really gain enough understanding of a subject that you can write about it accurately. The example I like to give students is um, the amazing argument that they get into in hateful eight about how many horses you need to get out to get your wagon out in that snowstorm and like i love it because it's one of those things that's like clearly research it's clearly like tarantino went deep on old west stuff and like that is the kind of decision making that we as modern people make all the time about like what train to take and you would not bat an eye in in a modern movie watching two people or like that great scene in collateral where they're arguing jamie fox is arguing with someone about like what and Jamie Foxx and Tom Cruise are arguing about whether to take the 110 or surface streets to the airport. Uh-huh. And you're like, well, that feels real. But in 300 years, if you're making a film set in the year 2000 in LA, you have to research that. Right, and right. Uh, a, f- a friend uh, a friend of a friend is working on a project with Todd Hope. And I heard him uh, through them. I heard to- that apparently Todd Hope's mantra is period films are sci-fi. That like all of the research and world building work you have to do for sci-fi, you also have to do for period work. I love that. I love that. I love that. So with that, let us pivot away from heavy, complicated issues of, of working with the Pentagon and the CIA and, and school shootings and pivot to the nice cold world of technology. <laughs> there, the, like there are bias issues at play. Let's, let's not pretend there's not, but we're, we're going to talk about two cool things that came out this week that came out on the same day, which is weird they came out on the same day, but whatever, there's two new cameras out. One is $40,000, one's $2,500. We're going to talk about them both. They're both very exciting. The first thing to talk about, it has been teased since NAB 2019. Like, I first heard this discussed talking to Aerie at NAB before the pandemic, and it didn't happen uh-huh. in 2020. And that's the new Aerie Alexa 35. 35. 
And so it's a super 35 sensor size. It's not full frame. I know all the news these days is full frame, but it's not full frame. It is a super 35 sensor size, but it's 4.6K, which is big news because Aerie has always, their super 35 camera has always been 2.5K. And they, and people don't really appreciate this about Aerie, but they had the same sensor for like the last 14 years. Like from 2008 to 2022, you were shooting that same ALEV-3 sensor. And it looks beautiful, so who cares, right? Other camera companies, every two years, they're like, we've come up with this new sensor, and it's got all this new stuff. And Aerie's like, yeah, but we've got this great sensor, and everybody kept shooting Aerie because it looks so good. This is the first new sensor from Aerie for a while. The suspicion is that eventually we'll have a full-frame version of this sensor where they take two of them and smush them together. That'll probably oh, happen. Wow. They'll probably be, I don't In know what they'll call years? that. 14 years? I, I doubt it'll be 14. I bet it'll be three. Like that'll be like a 9K sensor. So my suspicion is that what we're really waiting on is the processing power of the camera to catch up. So I would guess three or four years before we see that. But it's also the smallest camera area you've ever made. It's like smaller than even the original mini. So it doesn't weigh very much. It integrates into crazy workflows. Super 35, frankly, is still the sensor size that so much content you love was shot in. Like the Godfather shot super 35 sized image. Like not even super. The Godfather shot Academy Gate because they had sound back then. But like so much of the content you love in your life was shot super 35, roughly. Like there's, we're obsessed with full frame and full frame is nice. And I shoot a lot full frame, but like, I also shoot a lot Super 35, and I still think it looks really good. So it's exciting that Aerie has a new camera that is their first like new sensor in 14 years. Aerie's whole thing is very deliberate decision-making. They are very... Like when they right, first came right. out with a digital camera, they had this thing called the D21. And in order to rent it, you had to have a pre-meeting at the rental house. You had to bring someone from the rental house or from Aerie to set with you. And then you had to have a post-meeting at the rental house. So you wow. would tell Ari what your expectations were. They would prep you on how it worked. They would help you make it work. And then they'd talk to you after to see how you thought it went. And they that's did that so for like a glove. year. Oh, Ari. I mean, that's the definition of white glove, right? Like Ari. Right. Ari is it. And so when they finally launched the Alexa, it was like, oh, yeah, you guys nailed it. Because they did all the work it takes to nail it. So I suspect that this camera is going to be a big, I think there's going to be a big hit. There's also a new color science which is great. And the new color science is going to work with this camera, but also the LF. So you can take your, if you just shot something on the mini LF or the full-size LF, you can still pipe it through the new color science. The other big news here is they're claiming 17 stops of dynamic range. And Aries usually pretty good about no bullshit in that. I usually think they're pretty accurate. There are some companies that I won't mention where they'll be like 20 stops of dynamic range. And I test it and it's like 11, but Aries usually <laughs> on point. If, if they say 17, sometimes I think it's 16 and it's really just an argument about like very obscure technical shit no one cares about. But whatever, 16, 17 stops of range is like so much dynamic range. It's like, it's a lot. You've got room to expose in that. So it's it's super exciting. My question for you, Charles, is what project are you going to use this on? Do you have, I know you have a, a film coming up. Is this the So the I'm goal? shooting something in June. I haven't it hadn't even crossed my mind to pester Aerie to loan me one. Um but yeah, maybe I should pester Aerie to loan me one. I don't know. Yes, I am shooting something yes. in June. Usually the level where I am in my career, I usually get to shoot stuff with the new toys a little late at this level. So like even the 4D I didn't shoot until 3 or 4 months after it came out. Every mm -hmm. once in a while the smaller stuff I get to play with early. But yeah, I imagine 
I think where I am in the product cycle, my suspicion is it will be fall or spring before I get to take something out on the Alexa 35. Just because, you know, they have to make them, they have to get them to rental houses, they have to get a volume out there. But, you know, I think it's an exciting... listening... If you bought Maybe one don't. and you want me to shoot something on it for you, hit me up. I'm around and I, I would, <laughs> I'm very excited to shoot something on it. I, you know, and then the thing I have to say that I, I have to say the thing I always say in these circumstances, which is you don't buy a camera for rental, buy the camera you want to have for the work you want to do. But many people I know buy the camera that they want for the work they want to do for the jobs they're booking. And then they get some supplemental income from rentals, which mm-hmm. I respect. And I've done that, like looking around my office and the two cameras I own, I've gotten plenty of rentals out of them in between shooting projects on them myself. However, you've got about 12 months for a Red and 18 months for an Alexa where the prices are good. So if you're like, should I do an Alexa 35? Do it today. Like go put down a deposit, call your leasing company, lease cameras this big. Don't buy them outright. Don't tie up all your cash right like that. Talk to a leasing company that does equipment leasing. There's many motion picture equipment leasing company, spread out your payments over two years so you can keep some cash in the bank. And if you're doing it, just do it. Just like jump in and do it. Because if you wait six months, by six months in, there'll be more out there and the rental rate will go down a little bit. So if you're going to do it, do it. But like, you know, you can also just rent it once. If you're only going to shoot with it once a year, just, just rent it once a year. That's what rental houses are for. The other thing that came out today is Fuji has finally updated their XH line with, to the X-H2S. Now, I know a lot of you are thinking, but Charles, most, most of us are out here shooting Sony and Canon, and I know you're all shooting Sony and Canon, and like, whatever, that's fine. I did a job on Sony last year. It was, it was fine. I don't hate it. I don't love the color science. Fuji is like the dark horse in this arena because for whatever reason, people are not as obsessed with they are as they are with Canon and Sony. But goddamn, the color science is just so good straight out of the camera (laughs) that I will totally ignore everything else because I like the way the color looks. And if you go to NAB and you wander around, the number one camera I think you'll see around people's shoulders is Fuji. Bob Primes walked by me a couple of NABs ago and I was like, ooh, that's a Fuji X-T3. Like everybody is wandering around with Fujis. It's very popular with like higher end DPs who are like, oh, I don't need a camera to shoot on because when I book a job, I shoot on Alexa. This is just for like Mm -hmm. stills and tiny videos. And I just want the best color I can get for that. So that's Fuji. That's where they are in the space. I'm a big fan. I shoot a lot of X-H1. Fuji's also really good because they've always put a lot of work into not just their color reproduction, but also internal image stabilization. So if you're shooting a little long, you can still have smooth shots. And they're finally catching up with autofocus. So with the new X-H1 and the new lenses, the autofocus should be killer. I mean, the new X-H2. The X-H2 has taken a little while. It took like four years to come out and people were not were, you know, expecting it to come out faster, but it looks really good. The color looks to be great. It's like 2,500 bucks, so it's cheaper than the flagship Canon and Sony. It's Super 35. It's not full frame, but again, I like Super 35. It's my frame size. Mm. I dig it. Mm-hmm. So X-H2 is out, guys, and they, they launched some new lenses. And the exciting thing about the lenses, so Fuji is like, Huge company, like massive, massive company, many, 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 many divisions. And there's Fujifilm, which makes their cameras. And then there's Fujinon, which makes their cinema and broadcast lenses. And for the first time ever, they've launched a lens for the X series, which is a collaboration of, well, not the first time ever, because the MKs came out a couple of years ago, but those aren't autom- those don't have autofocus. This is the first autofocus collaboration with Fujinon and Fujifilm. So it doesn't seem like a big deal because you're like, well, those are just the same company. 
But it was a big deal for Sony when Sony Cinealta, which is an internal division of Sony, started working on some of their cameras to bring their color science. And it's the same deal here. The lenses will be great because Fujifilm makes great lenses. And the Fujinon zoom is going to be killer. And yeah, I'm excited. I mean, I'm excited as a Fuji shooter. I'm just also excited for there to be more Fuji shooters. And I think that this will help. Big week in tech. Big week in tech. Big week in tech. (laughs) All right. So that is that is the No Film School podcast this week. I'm Charles Hain. You can find me on the internet at charleshain.com. I will be in and out this month because I'm shooting a big project, but then I will be back in July. I can't wait to hear about the project. I'm Gigi Hawkins. You can find me at Lost in Graceland on social media. And uh, I'd love to make a recommendation if you are at all interested in learning about how the government is involved in shaping pop culture. There's a fascinating exploration of that from Pineapple Street Media and Crooked Media and Spotify called Wind of Change. It's a podcast and I'm about six episodes deep. Have you heard it? I read, I listened to it. It's so good. Wind of Change is amazing. It's so good. And also now I love the song Wind of Change by the Scorpions, whether or not it was sort of influencing and designed for Cold War propaganda. I don't know yet. I'm not done with the podcast, but the song is... Great. And I'm George Edelman, editor-in-chief at No Film School. Thank you so much for listening. You can read about everything we talked about today and more at nofilmschool.com. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, check us out on Instagram and YouTube. Be sure to like, rate, and subscribe to this podcast. Leave a comment and let us know what you think and send your questions to editor at nofilmschool.com. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.